we can please deposit the phones where the phones belong in the special Eat phone wicker normal. basket. Look at all the questions you've raised. I, I did not raise any questions. What else, questions. what else do I have to know about phones? Food I should not be eating. I'm already picky. Let me know. Okay. We're going to learn about Purim. Okay. So I prepared three Purim topics because we had three classes, but we've used once. We're down to two Purim topics. And given the rate at which I tend to explain things, I don't think we're going to get to the second topic either. But, no. Although maybe I'll just make you keep it at home. Okay, fine. So there's a lot of chassidus on Purim. So we're going to start with some, let's say, very basic idea. And we'll see where that takes us. In the Megillah, there is a verse which says that the Jews accepted upon themselves to continue doing what they've been doing, what they started to do. The Kibla Yehudim, the Jews accepted upon themselves as a Shechelulasos, what they began to do. What does that mean? But what was the first time that the rabbis ever made up a holiday? Anyone know? Hanukkah? No. Purim. Purim. Oh. Hanukkah was hundreds of years later. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So the first time the rabbi said, I have an idea, let's make up a holiday. Now, whose idea was it to make up this holiday? Anyone know? Ahasuerus was not a rabbi. Well, Mordechai. Mordechai. Although, to be fair, Mordechai had a partner in crime here, and she was not a rabbi either. Esther. Esther. Esther Mordechai had a great idea. Let's make a whole holiday and make new mitzvahs and new rules and they instituted this whole great holiday. And what did the Jewish people think? The rest of the Sanhedrin, the high court, what did they think about this idea? I'm not sure. Okay, fine, baby, I guess, most of it. Most of it. We'll take some, we'll leave some others. And in the end... Um, they uh, said, yeah, we'll go with it. And so the Jewish people accepted upon themselves as a binding law for all eternity upon them and their descendants and their descendants, descendants for all time. And yes, in Judaism, you can take something upon yourself that binds your descendants for all time. Isn't that lovely? So much about for that individualism we spoke about yesterday. Um, to have the holiday of Purim. Okay? There were elements that Mordechai and Esther, Esther wanted to institute that they did not accept. Like they wanted to make it like like um, a regular biblical holiday where you can't um, drive and use electricity and stuff like that. Why not? Um, the Sanhedrin, the court. Um, why? I'll give you the Hasidic answer because it's a Hasidic class. The Hasidic answer is because the whole point of Purim is that Purim reaches our everyday physical lives and if you have to avoid regular physical activities then you miss the point of Purim. Anyway, now, however, our sages and the Chassidus explain that this actually is referring to a deeper idea, which is that the Jewish people accepted the Torah. Because we all know that the day of the acceptance of the Torah is Purim. Yes, you know that? You, yeah, the day when the Jewish people accepted the Torah was Purim. Should we? No, no, not really. 
It's kind of like, you know in those mob movies when like, a guy comes into your like, cleaners and is like, it's a really nice uh, joint you got here. It'd be a real shame if something happened to it. <laughs> and then you start handing over some money to him on a regular basis. Would you say that was like, that's like a, like, like you, you, you've accepted that business arrangement? No, no. You really accepted that? What? You had no choice. You had no choice, okay. We're Russian, that's how all this is. Well, hence the Russian economy looks the way it does. <laughs> right? You have six people that control everything. Um, so, the sages, the sages, I mean, it is true. Okay, I mean, you're right, it's not six, it's like 16. So, um, the Medrash tells us that at Har Sinai, Hashem had this great idea. So he comes to the Jewish people and says, I have this great thing called the Torah. Would you like it? And the Jewish people said, Yeah, sure. Okay, there's background though. Right? Hashem held the mountain over their head and said, Here's this mountain. Now, I have this Torah. Are you interested? Because if you're not, see mountain? Yeah, that's really, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. I thought it was like not. Wait, if not, I thought the mountain was something. If not, then he could crush them. What about the other people he asked? It's not gonna. The other people he didn't threaten. If not, then what? Um. Then he said, "Then this will be your burial place." Then I'll crush you. Yeah. Destroy. Yeah. So, and for the next thousand years or so, why were the Jewish people keeping the Torah and keeping? You have to put in like quotation marks with fine print because let's be honest. The Jewish people weren't doing a great job of keeping it. But why were the Jewish people keeping the Torah? Because, because they had been bullied into, they had been threatened into accepting it. But at a certain point, isn't that threat like, to their great, great, great ancestors? So... No. So there is a concept in Jewish law. This is an important concept. The concept is like this. If I come into your store and I say, you know, sell me your store or I'm going to kill you, and you sell me your store, guess what? It's my store. That's just, you know, tough, tough life. However, you have a way out of this. If you um, do something to make it known to other people such that they can be testified in court that you weren't serious about selling your store, Okay. Um, then your subsequent sale is invalid. So if you come to some people and you say, look, Rabbi Kaufman, he's making me nervous. I think he's going to pressure me into selling my store. So I just want to let everyone know that when I sell my store, I don't really mean it. So then you can go to court and say, look, I have these witnesses. I never really intended. I was doing it under duress. And then it's perfectly valid. You get your store back. Okay. This concept of making a a disclaimer but that what you're doing is under duress is a very important concept in Jewish law. And the, the Medrash tells us that the Jewish people had such a disclaimer when it came to the giving of the Torah. The Jewish people like, we're accepting this, but only because you're forcing us, so it's not really valid acceptance. Which means for the next thousand years when the Jewish people were observing the Torah, on a certain level they weren't really obligated because... It was under duress, and they had made clear that they're, that they're not really sincere about it. So, when did the Jewish people actually accept the Torah not under duress? Purim. Purim. 
Right. So our sages say, when do the Jewish people actually accept the Torah willfully and therefore in a binding way? Purim. So now, this, that's what the Medrash says, that's what our sages say. Now what we need to do is you understand what exactly is going on with this whole story. In other words, what, what is really the giving of the Torah, the accepting Torah? What does that really mean? Um, and what is it about Purim specifically that made the acceptance more valid than what originally happened at Harsinai, Mount Sinai, and Shavuos. Okay, so, what we're going to do is like this. We're going to take a couple of ideas in order. The first idea we're going to do is we're going to talk about what is the Torah. When we finish talking about what the Torah is, okay, then we're going to talk about what does it mean to do the Torah? Like it's one thing for to talk about the Torah as an object, another thing to talk about you as a person doing Torah mitzvahs. Okay? And then last, we are going to talk specifically about studying Torah, like as opposed to mitzvahs. So we're going to talk about Torah mitzvahs in general, people doing Torah mitzvahs, and then the study of Torah. Once we finish all of that, then we'll go from there, and then we'll go back to what happened on Mount Sinai, what happened on Purim, why those things are different. Because the whole point of Purim is really that we are finally accepting the Torah. So if we don't really know what the Torah is, we don't even mean that we're doing the Torah, or we don't know what it means that we're learning Torah, if we don't have that clear, what that's all about, then we've kind of missed the whole point of Purim. Good? So it's kind of like a Shavuos class. But not really. Okay. Now... Our sages tell us that Avraham kept the entire Torah. This is problematic because if Avraham kept the entire Torah, that kind of makes the whole idea of giving the Torah at Mount Sinai a little irrelevant. Right? Why would you need to give the Torah at Mount Sinai if... Right. So for this, we need to understand that the Torah actually is not just a list of ideas or principles or concepts. The Torah is, um, is a single point. Right? What's that point? So the way our sages put it is like this. They use an analogy. That there were once two countries in an empire and the emperor made a decree that the people of one country can't m travel to the place of the other, the other country, and vice versa. Okay? And so now, all the inhabitants of one country, they're stuck here, all the inhabitants of the other country are stuck there. And then at one point, the king decides, you know what, forget that decree, the two countries can intermingle. So these two countries are an analogy for the idea that there is a physical reality and there is a godly reality. And when God originally made the world, what rule did he make? Physical reality cannot become part of godly reality, and godly reality cannot become part of physical reality. And what happened at Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, what happened when Hashem gave the Torah to Moshe at Har Sinai? He got rid of that rule. So the essence of the Torah is not godliness. It's not physical reality, it's the fact that physical reality and godliness coexist as part of one reality. 
So when it says that Avram, for instance, kept the entire Torah, what that really means is that all the godly elements of the Torah that we have, Avram was able to participate in. He was to partake of. But when Avram was doing something godly, it wasn't really physical. And when he was doing something physical, it wasn't really godly. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. Okay, what does it mean that he was doing something physical? It wasn't godly or godly wasn't physical? Let's take the act of writing. What is the point of writing? What? Yeah, to capture an idea for the purposes of recording, for re later reference or communication, right? Okay. So when you are writing, are you involved in a, we're going to use mental, are you involved in a mental activity or a physical activity? Now pay attention to the word you said. Are you involved in a mental activity or in a physical activity? Really? When you're sitting and writing, you're, you are engaged with, okay, now I'm going to move the pen this way to make the letters that way. That's what you're doing? You are when you're five. When you're learning to write, yeah. yeah. When you're, when, you know, have you ever tried writing a, a, a letter, a handwritten letter to someone that you needed to impress? You notice that now all of a sudden you pay attention to how you actually shape the letters. And so now you're, and you notice when you're paying attention to that, you're not really paying attention to the content, to how the language conveys the ideas and the feeling. Right? So, now it's true, I looking at you from the outside might be able to tell, but if you are engaged with the content of your writing, if that's where you, what you're involved with, you're not really paying attention to your penmanship. And if you're paying attention to your penmanship, the content goes out the window. You know what's interesting? There's something called a cipher. A cipher writes a cipher Torah, or tefillin, or mezuzahs, or relevant for coming up, Megillah. How does a cipher do that? They copy. Now, you would think that a cipher, they, um, they would know the whole Torah by heart, right? Yeah. Or the whole Megillah by heart. Yeah. Why not? They're not like, thinking of every single word. They're, letter by letter. they're thinking Aleph, Bays, Gimel. Yeah. And they're making sure that the Aleph looks like an Aleph and the Bays looks like a Bays, right? Like, they're not experts in the meaning of the Torah at all, right? And then there are people who can expound the depths of the meaning of the Torah, and right, they might not even notice if they're reading out of a, out of, out of a handwritten manuscript or a printed book, because they're just, that's being filtered out completely. The physical quality of it is irrelevant. Okay? In other words, you can be involved in something that is physical and the fact that it ha correlates to some godly meaning is like in the background out of the picture. Or you can connect to the godliness, in which case the physical thing is simply a means to an end. It has no significance. It's almost transparent. Okay, so there is something, there's, some, there's a mitzvah called tefillin. Have you heard of the mitzvah tefillin? It's a weird mitzvah. God wants Jewish men to wrap their boxes around their arm and their head for some strange reason. And it does some godly thing. It, the, the sages say that our forefather Yaakov, he also did the same idea. He also did the same thing. But he used sticks. He, he did a, the same godly, whatever the godly thing happens when you put on tefillin, happened with Yaakov when he was carving some sticks. You know, like whittling the sticks and making them have fancy little shapes. And, yeah. I mean, look, if you can do godly stuff with wrapping black leather straps on your arm, why can't you do it with carving sticks? 
<laughs> my grandmother was traditional, but not, but not religious. And so one time my, my cousin, we were, we were having dinner and my, my, my cousin and I um, were sitting there and um, he's Chabad, I'm Chabad, and she's traditional. So she knows like milk, meat, these basic things. And he's eating, he's like, is there like wine in this chicken? She says, yeah. And, and also like some sort of like uh, citrus that's maybe orange. And my grandma looks at him and says, yeah. And my Bobby says, well, what's the problem? He says, well, you have to understand, like, like citrus fruits, they come from like trees and the vineyard, like the vine, right? And they're mixing the vine and the tree. And this is like a very, and like my Bobby's, she's like, what's going on? And he says, no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just not making stuff up. <laughs> but the thing is like, I could tell you right now that there's a mitzvah about like not mixing vines and trees and you like, like there's enough strange stuff in Judaism, you wouldn't know the difference. I didn't do it. My cousin did it. It's like, you just get used to your own particular brand of strangeness. You don't realize it's strange. So if you can do it with sticks. You can do, if you can do it with leather straps, you do it with sticks, right? Okay, fine. But here's the thing. If God forbid my tefillin were to drop on the floor, I had to call a rabbi because now I have to fast and there's a whole bunch of problematic stuff. And when I'm done with my tefillin, I kiss them and I put them away very carefully. And when Yaakov was done with his sticks, you know what he did? Threw them in the trash because? Because there's no, yeah, there was no connection, right? So the idea here is that when he, now, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, our forefathers, when they were involved in everything in life, they were actually not involved in the physical at all. So if Yaakov is sitting around having a cup of coffee, he's not aware of the coffee. He's only in touch with, with the godliness that's going on. Like the coffee is irrelevant to him. About everything in his life. And so when it says the forefathers did the mitzvahs, it means they connected the same godly reality that we can connect to with our mitzvahs. But they didn't really have the Torah because they're connecting that godly reality put them, in some sense, out of touch with the physical reality. Okay? If you want to think about it, it's like having a, a, a person who's a small child and a person who's an adult they can be looking at the same thing and they see two totally different things. Yeah? So when Yaakov and when Avram and when Sarah and Rivka, when these people, they, 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 they weren't actually living in the same world that we were living in. I mean, they had physical bodies, but they were in touch with the godly aspect and that came at the expense of really being in tune with what was going on physically. I mean, one of the ways you can see this is that when um, Avram and Sarah went to Egypt, and Avram says, now I know that you're beautiful. And so one of the explanations is that so long as they were not in Egypt, which is a very unholy place, Avram did not notice that Sarah was beautiful. Now why was that? He was only seeing her Right, he was only seeing her soul level, right? And all of a sudden, the shock of encountering such an unholy place thrust him momentarily into the physical reality. And he's like, oh, I, I never noticed that before. Like now I've got to make some plans because this is dangerous. So this idea that, you, that, that this, the godly reality and the physical reality, those things are, are one and the same. They can be synthesized. That's the essence of what the Torah is all about. Okay. Now, if that's the essence of what the Torah is all about, that means that you have to really take the Torah and divide it into how many parts. 
think about that. How many parts does the Torah have to have? At least two. No. Three. Why three? No, it has to have at least three. It has to have, well, close, not both, but. It has to have the physical, it has to have the godly, and it has to have something which is going to put them together. Something which is neither of the two and put them together, right? We have a problem here. Because if, it's, if, if, the, if the third thing is physical, it's not going to bridge the gap. And if the third thing is spiritual, godly, it's also not going to bridge the gap. Therefore, the Torah has to be tripartite. It has to have three elements. It has to have an element that relates to the physical reality, an element that relates to the godly reality, and an element which bridges the gap between them. Okay? And Avraham, he had access to the godly part of the Torah, but he didn't have access to the part that bridges the gap. When did God make that available? No. Mat the Torah, the giving of the Torah. When did the Jews finally absorb that and take ownership of that? Horrid. Is there a for Yes, and we're going to explain what that is. All right. Before we get to the bridging part, we're going to talk about the other two parts of the Torah. What is the physical part of the Torah? The physical part of the Torah is that the Torah is, has a actual requirement of how you have to do things. This is a part that some people love and some people hate. So let's run through this. We're coming up to Purim. What do you have to do on Purim? Okay, you have to hear these words in mostly Hebrew, a few Persian, read, right, out loud, listening to every word, from a scroll written by an animal parchment, by a scribe, at this time, and then again at this time, right? If you ha- in order, if you read it too early, no good. If you read it too late, no good. If you miss the beginning, if you miss the first word, no good. Start from, yeah? You have to give a gift to your friend. What do you have to give? Food. Food they can eat right away. How many kinds of food? Do they have to have the same bracha? Or do they have, do they have different brachas? Do they have the same bracha? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Okay. When do you have to give it to them? The day of Purim. What if you give it to them at the night of Purim? What if you give them the day of Purim but after the sun goes down? See, they're getting a lot of rules here, right? How many, how many, how many gifts to the poor do you have to give? Those. Two. Two. You have to give two gifts, one to each poor person. How much do you have to give? No, how much do you have to give? You have to give a pruta, which is, I don't know exactly what a pruta is right now, but it's some probably between 10 agarot and half a shekel. How much are you, su- that's, how much are you supposed to give? Enough to buy a meal. But it, it, the, the minimum requirement is to give something that has that has a lot of financial value, what is which is shekels? it's like somewhere between ten agarot and half a shekel. No, but like the full meal. How much do you like spend 35? on a meal? Depends on what kind of food I'm eating. When you want to have like a nice meal, like that's you, 40, you, 40, you want it. Forty-two. Okay. That's how much it costs. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay. It's cheap. You you seeing what's happening here? Like this is getting very technical, right? Okay. Um, yeah. There's a joke 
Um, there's an Israeli custom of Yom HaTzma'ut. I'm not getting into the issue of Zionism now. I'm just making a joke, okay? So, because Jews are Jews, right? So what happens with a religious Zionist on Yom HaTzma'ut? Because they start getting discussions of exactly how much meat has to be eaten and at what rate and how it has to be cooked and what temperature. And if you cook it in your oven, is that really considered barbecuing? Right? Because if you do everything, Judaism there has a specific requirement, okay? Once you take this idea that everything has to be physical, physical parameters, that means everything has to be spelled out in annoying detail. That's a joke because barbecuing like a muskot is not a muskot. Like the way you tie your shoes. They don't understand. Yeah. It's okay. There's a view that doesn't apply to women because it's connected to its fill in. So. The order of the tying of the. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the switching around thing. Right, left, right, left. Yeah, there's a view well, that women should just do right. Placing of the shoes on. What do you mean just do right? Right, right, left, left. Or you were saying, like, just tie your right shoe. No, yeah. Um, on, so, in the balance between the spirituality and the practical There's no balance. There's no balance, but okay. Sorry, on the balance. In the, what was the word you preferred? Harmony? Nope. Harmony, okay. that's good. Harmony, okay. And the harmony between spiritual and, and practical observance. So we said that, but I'm assuming that Fordham is celebrated on different days in different places because the spirituality of Fordham is manifest at different times. Mm-hmm. So, and then there are pragmatic consequences of that. If you um, were to spend the first, like the day of regular forum in Jerusalem, and then to go to a lot for the second day, which would be forum in Jerusalem, do you, like... You've sinned. Okay. Why? And like, is that a practical thing? Yes, there's, no, there's, 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 a, there's a prohibition, there's a prohibition of of exempting yourself entirely from a mitzvah like that. Is that a spiritual thing or a practical? It's a practical. It's a practical. It's a practical thing. It has a halacha consequence. I don't want to get into. But you are required to enable yourself to do mitzvahs, and you're forbidden from preventing yourself from doing this. I don't want to get into the specifics of this. Um, I'll just tell you one practical ramifications of this whole issue in general, because it's not my field of expertise. If you are in prison, okay. and you can get out to hear Megillah for Purim or you can get out to hear Shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Now, Shofar is a biblical commandment, and Megillah is only rabbinic. But you can only get out once. What do you do? You, get one, you have one day that you can get out of prison, and go, you have to go back to prison afterwards. The one that comes first. Because you are not allowed to avoid fulfilling mitzvahs as they come into your So to work around... If, Work around the fact that Purim is an obligation. If you want to do both Purims, that's fine. But you're not allowed to work around both Purims. But then you're not ever in a place where the spirituality of Purim is present. So how, that, that's, that's what I'm trying the to... That's what I'm trying to... There's a tension between like... But that's what I'm telling you. There's a law that you have to make sure that you keep Purim. Like you have to expose yourself to the spirituality of it? No. Like, leave spirituality out of it. There's no spirituality. This is what I'm getting to you. But that, that's what I'm asking is how does the spirituality fit into that halakha? Or does it? I don't want to. It doesn't. I'm just telling you one half of the Torah right now, so I'm only going to talk about that part. Oh, okay. okay. Quick question. Yeah. Is man to man, woman to woman? Man to man, woman to woman. There's even views that if you mistakenly messed it up, you might not have even done the mitzvah at all. So I can't address it to my mom and dad. I don't know about that. What? Did you be married? No, there's also an issue. But that's, no, if you give it to man, you won't be married. If he gives it to you and you're dating, okay. Jamie, you can't speak right now. Okay. 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 Okay.
The halacha is men to men, women to women. Just do it the right way. By the way, halacha is very simple if you do it the way you're supposed to. And all the complications happen when you mess things up. The gifts, the food gifts. Because the food gifts, the reason is the whole, the whole food gifts is to create close feeling. That's the, that, is the, okay. that is the explicit purpose of that commandment. You can make surrender for charity. Yeah, that's not Okay. That's not supposed to create closeness. Okay. Now, yes. Mm-hmm. Would you like to offer a mitzvah in the six thirteen that you don't think is physical? Well, okay, loving your fellow Jew, according to the Rambam, means saying nice things about them. It means treating their property with that extra care you treat your own property. Um, according to Hasidus, okay, the requirement is that you, um, you actually prioritize them in everything the way you would prioritize yourself. So for instance, um, when you're handing out cookies, yeah, and there's eight people and nine cookies, and they're your cookies that you bought. Obviously, who gets the two cookies? Except, obviously, Israel means why, 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 why? What do you do special? Yeah. Now, obviously, the more you're going to sincerely do that, right, because physical people are not, this is why I didn't use the word spiritual, is that because, because, we're, because we are, we are integrated beings, the more you want to actually engage your physical reality holistically, you're going to need to bring your mind and your heart into that, obviously. But really, okay? By the way, then you can say like love of Hashem. Love of Hashem is only a mix mitzvah if it is a feeling that leads you to do other mitzvahs. Yeah? So if you like go to Mount Tabat, I just feel this love for Hashem. That's very nice. You didn't do a mitzvah. A love for Hashem is only a mitzvah when it motivates you to do another mitzvah. Fear of Hashem is only a mitzvah when it motivates you or not to sit. Yeah. Yeah. So like I'm afraid of Hashem, like this person this person sent me emails, like I'm afraid of Hashem. Like every time I eat pork I feel like I'm I'm Hashem's gonna get me. I'm like, okay, I mean and tell him this, but you're you I mean, not that you're really interested in this, but you're not feeling the midst of being afraid of Hashem that way. Because if your fear is not enough to get you to stop eating the pork, it doesn't count. Yeah, knowledge of Hashem. When is that a mitzvah? Well, you ever tried to learn something? What happens when you really learn something to your brain? No, what happens to your brain? Your brain changes. Right? You, you, real learning rewires your brain. Why is real learning hard and hurts and tires you out? Because you are? So what is the, what is the, what is the, what does it mean to know Hashem or to know His unity? That knowledge has to actually restructure your physical brain. Which is why souls in heaven can't do the midst of knowing Hashem. Because they don't have physical brains to restructure. The subjective knowledge is not the, the mitzvah. The mitzvah is having to learn it with a physical brain and have the difficulty of going through it. That's what makes it a mitzvah. Anyway, all the mitzvahs have a physical component. Okay. What is the spiritual or godly part of the mitzvah? 
No. The. No, because remember, Avram had this part, and he didn't bring godliness in the world. The, the spiritual part of the mitzvah. The spiritual part of the mitzvah. Is. That when you do a mitzvah, you know what happens as a result. God does a mitzvah. Of Torah or of mitzvot? Right now, I'm just shifted. I know. Right now, I'm doing Torah mitzvahs as interchangeable. When I'll get the poem, something that's specific to Torah, I'll tell you. Okay. So, when you give tzedakah, there you go. When you light Shabbos candles, when you honor your parents, God honors his parents. Whoa, 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 right. Now, that's why it's called a godly reality. It's a whole different reality, right? This doesn't make sense in your conception of God, does it? No. No, it doesn't. He doesn't have parents. Well, apparently, he does. There are also some godly aspects. Okay, you see that chart that I make fun of a lot? That is like a really, really bad symbolic representation of godly reality. And what I mean by that is that when you do a mitzvah, stuff happens in godly reality. So for instance, I'm just going to say that the sphere of Chachma is called the father. The sphere of Bina is called, wait for it, the mother. The six emotional attributes are called the son. And Malchus is called Daughter. Yeah. And so when you mess around with those relationships, there can be an honoring of parents. And it's all, but the thing is, like, we're, not talking about, we're not talking about a reality that we're in any way familiar with, are we? No. When you say parents, you're talking about the spirits. That's right. Which aren't technically his parents. Well, they're the parents. Well, so there's one aspect of godly reality to which another aspect of godly reality is his parents. It's my. I'm not going to elaborate on this more. I just want to point out. What I want to no. The, the reason why, I want, as I want to point out, is if you're if this is your reality, it's not the reality that the rest of us are living in. And if you're living in the reality the rest of us are living in, this doesn't make sense. Right. Okay. These are very very different things. Right. In other words, there is an godly. Reality has this all of its own internal richness and complexity that you and I are completely oblivious to. And so when we give tzedakah, we think, okay, I'm taking money, I'm giving tzedakah, now I'm like, that's what's going on, right? And so I'm paying attention to me as a being and the money is money and the other person is a poor person, right? That, that's the reality of what's going on, right? And God giving tzedakah is some other thing entirely. I mean, it correlates in some way to what I'm doing, but it's very different. What I'm doing is just an analogy to that. God doesn't have parents in the way we have parents. That means God doesn't honor them in the way we honor them. That means it's like, just an analogy. So when Avram was aware of all that godly reality, he was completely not being in touch with the reality that we live in. And what, is, what is, happens in the Torah is that, is that after giving the Torah, these two realities, do they necessarily contradict? No. There's a yes and because there's a third thing that brings them together. And what is the third thing? The third thing is, is that what these are doing makes God happy. Doing mitzvahs makes God happy. 
Yeah. You think, well, what's the big deal about that? Yeah. No, let me, let me explain to you what I mean. Okay? So let's, as an analogy, let's say, and I'm going to put this a little bit self-centeredly because it'll highlight this to make this. Let's say um, I get home early. My wife's not home. The kids aren't home. I clean up the house. I make dinner. Um, I take out the trash. Clean this up the That only happens hopefully once in my life. <laughs> okay? I do all of those things. My wife comes home. I uh, help put the kids down to bed calmly. Yeah. Everything is wonderful. And afterwards, my wife says, that's so wonderful. And I say, yep, I did it just so that I would feel good about myself. <laughs> I, like, I decided that really I have to focus more on me and what makes me feel good. And that's like the only really important thing. And I realized that these things make me feel good. So I'm, that's why I did them. No, but, but, but if I really meant that, what would that, like, what would that happen? Like, where, 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 where would the relationship go after that? Not very far. Couldn't you say that it's true that it made you feel good because you know, if it's subconsciously or not, but you know that it made her feel good. It made like your family feel good. Oh, the house is clean. Like they're so happy, and that made you happy. That's really what I meant. No, I didn't mean that. I just meant I'm trying to make me happy. Like that's it. Like 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 I like to be able to look back at my life and say, yes, I have a clean house. My kids go to bed. My wife is sitting there smiling. Yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. me looking at, it's not, like, I don't actually care about her subjective experience at all. Like, if but she's miserable deep she's down happy. inside, that's her problem. But you said she's happy. No, no, she's just looking there happy. Like, from my experience, it has to be that way. Like, I just, like, I want, you know, you know that, you know that wonderful happy family they have on television? I want my family to look like that. The fact that that actress that plays the wife is really on drugs and is miserable is contemplating suicide doesn't bother me watching television. Right? So, the fact that my wife and children might be absolutely miserable and suffering inside, that doesn't bother me as long as, in my, the way, um, I, the way I look at that my whole life, it meets the picture that I want. Because the only thing that really matters is me and my happiness. I don't think anybody would like being on the receiving end of that very much. That's right. Okay, now let's go from that analogy, because the analogy is only an analogy. Okay? And let's abstract a little bit from it, okay? What I'm saying is that there are these activities that have value. Making dinner. Well, making dinner has a lot of value to it. Number one, there's a practical value. If dinner is made, people can eat. Dinner is not made, eating becomes more difficult. Yeah? Practical. So, if dinner is not made and everyone eats cornflakes, Right? Then you also have to deal with nutrition problems, chaos. When you have one child who's sitting there dutifully waiting for their cornflakes, that's one thing. When you have seven children screaming for cornflakes, that is called chaos. Especially when you do not intend to serve cornflakes, you just realize there's no dinner. Right? So there's all sorts of like, you know, practical considerations. In addition, right, there's the idea that doing things that benefit others helps you bring you closer together and build relationship and some sense of camaraderie and togetherness and family well-being and all those good things, right? So there's both a practical consideration and a social consideration, right? There's a, in other words, there's a value to these activities independent of whether they make me feel good, right? 
Now, if what I'm saying is that what makes me feel good is recognizing the value in those activities, then like that's wonderful, right? What's good about making dinner? It's healthy, it's practical, it brings the family together. And if I value those things, that's even better. I have, I have good values, right? But that's not what I said. I said that I'm sidestepping those other values and saying the only value in these activities is that I look down on my life and I'm like, yep, I approve. I give a stamp of approval to the way my life looks. So what am I doing? I'm negating the importance of those other values and only making what important? My approval. Okay, do you hear the difference? Usually when we say we enjoy something, what we mean is that I am reacting to something that is already present there. Okay? Baking dinner, it has practical benefits. It has benefits for improving the quality of the family life. And therefore, I, my enjoyment of those things is an approval of those. So if I say like, I enjoy helping people, is that selfish? It depends. If what I mean, and what people usually mean is, is that helping people is good, right? I recognize its goodness, and therefore I feel good being involved in things that I recognize have an intrinsic goodness to them. Yeah. So I'm recognizing the value in something outside of myself. That's amazing. That's good. Yeah. What if you say, like, I don't actually care about the people and whether it helped or not, right? It's just as long as the way my life looks matches the picture in my head, then I'm happy. That's an entirely different thing. Yeah. Is it an issue if you also, besides valuing things and whatever, um, also feel like, being, I would think that if you, for the whole of your marriage, came home early every day and cleaned the house and took out the trash and cooked dinner and whatever, you would still, even if you were doing that because you love your wife and, and for all the other considerations, you would still at the end look back and be proud that you did the right thing, mm -hmm. right, on, on a personal level. Um, I'm not going to talk about it because it's not relevant right now. Okay. It's a very interesting question. So here's the, here's the thing. What's wrong with me saying the only value in something is that it meets my expectations? What? It's not just me here. Now let me put this in slightly different words. Am I the ultimate source of all reality? Mm -hmm. So am I the source of value? Mm -hmm. So should I recognize that things have value independent of me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So is it, what I want to hear move away is from the subjective selfish, not selfish thing to just an action, just a question of true or false. Yeah. Does your, the value in your life stem from me? Okay, so therefore, unless I'm going to live a lie, it, would be, it, it doesn't make any sense for me to say that the value in being good to you in any way, shape, or form is that it makes me feel good. That's just not true. Your life has a value independent of me, and therefore, your welfare is important independent of me. And yes, I should, I should enjoy helping you because I recognize the value in your life. I recognize the, the, that things have value beyond myself because I'm not the source of reality. But do you see a problem here if we then project this way of thinking onto God? Because what is God? And therefore, do things have independent value outside of Him? Where do the things get their value from outside of God? Where, 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 like, where are they going to get their value from? 
Where are they going to get their importance from? They come from the guy that comes from God. So the only reason why anything is important is because God approves. There is no other standard, in some ultimate there is no other standard of ethics, morality, or value that you can check up other things against. This is one of the difference, this is one of the issues that people face when dealing with God, is that God is not just a supersized version of a person. A supersized version of a person is a being embedded in reality, is not a being that created reality. And by creating reality means all of reality. So why is a moral thing moral? And therefore reality reflects that. And so when you look at reality, you can detect, assuming that you're not corrupted, the morality of these things and the immorality of those things. The same way you can detect you know, the sweetness of sugar and the bitterness of, I don't know what's bitter. Horse Yeah. Yeah. Right? Now, and if you can't, then we say there's something wrong with you. Like your taste buds are off. Okay. But what is it? But ultimately, it's God is the, the 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 source of reality. So there's this higher truth that really the only reason why anything is meaningful at all in any way, shape, or form is because God yeah, God approves of it. Now, is there a corollary to that in a human being relating to another human being? There is, by the way. No, you're not going to like this. A king. You know why we got rid of our kings? Or if we're, you know, British, we really restricted their power? Because what is the idea of a king? No checks and balances. There's no checks and balances. There's no external standard to, to, to quote Charles I before they executed him. You can't judge me. I am the law. If I say it's wrong, it's wrong. I can't, like, like it, is a, it, is a, it is a technical impossibility for me to be wrong because I am the thing that determines what's right and wrong. Right, well, then they killed him because uh, to quote to quote um, a, a, a Romans, those of you with uh, those of those of those of you with with uh, those of you without swords should stop quoting law books to those of us with swords. <laughs> it's not a very effective strategy. Um, but no, th- I mean this is what a king is. A king is a, a king. Right? We don't we don't really we arrange our side without this. Okay, but. But this idea is that, 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 that Hashem is the actual um, source of reality and therefore he determines what is right and what is wrong, what is meaningful, what is not meaningful. Yeah? Does that mean that he puts like, more meaningful things on Jews than like, non-Jews? Correct. So there is kind of like a, some things are meaningful but not meaningful. Yeah, some things are only meaningful because they lead to other things, but they're not having, God doesn't embed an intrinsic meaning into them, yeah. So now, here's the thing. If you're focused on, if you're focused on what you have to do in order to fulfill your halachic obligations, do you have the headspace? Can you in any way really engage, really live a life dealing with these higher, like, realities of God, like, godliness and stuff? No. And if you're involved in this godly reality, it's so far beyond the human being's normal plane that what happens to your sense of the regular physical life that the rest of the human beings interact with, you kind of just see right through it, like Abraham did. What if God gives you a sense that really the only reason why anything matters at all is because he says so? Then what happens to the division between those two things? This is meaningful because God said so. This is meaningful because God said so. Is there any real reason? There's no, 
it, it orients you entirely from a different place. Let me give you an example. Okay. Usually we pay attention only to big things and we don't pay attention to small things. Or we pay attention to small things that we don't pay attention to. An example of paying attention to big things and not paying attention to small things is you forget to pack something. Happens all the time, right? Like we're going on a trip and it's going to be amazing and it's, you know, great and it's wonderful, right? And you forgot some tiny little thing, which is inconvenient, right? Or, right, you have 25 sec different lists of what to do and like how to pack and da 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 And like what about the, the, the excitement of going on the trip? As you're it kind of like it's lost because you're like getting too far down into the details, yeah? Right, there's this tension. Is there a situation, just to use an example, where you could be aware of like the big deal and at the same time all the little specifics? Yeah. I feel like maybe like in a gymnastics performance or a dance recital or something like that, you have to be careful. I think gymnastics specifically, like you have to be careful of the very big things, like what skills you're doing and keeping balance, whatever, but you also have to be um, aware of the small things like don't take off the points if your hair is out of place or if you're not smiling. And how do you do that? Um, you have to make one of the things like second nature. As in like either the skills have to be second nature or you have to make sure you're prepared beforehand and prepare what you Okay. So, but then what you're saying is you're avoiding having to focus on both at the same time. So. Right. I want a thing where you can actually be, be engaged with both at the same time. What you're saying is I, I figured out a way around my problem. <laughs> That's fine. Have someone else pack for you. Also, in, you know, who's not excited to go on the trip and they're just working off a dry checklist, right? That'll work also. Yeah. No, you don't. Be able to say the words. No, you don't have to know what you're saying at all. So, but they do. But they ask any rabbi who reads the Megillah, most none of them are actually thinking about what they mean as they're reading it. There was actually a big deal is that someone was someone, one of the other Hasidic rebbe's criticized the Alter Rebbe um, for his approach, and, and another Hasidic rebbe said, "Look, I don't know what you're talking about. He experiences all the godly reality when he reads the Torah, and he reads the Torah correctly." Because what usually happens when big tzaddikim become aware of the godliness in what they're reading? Yeah, the reading doesn't always come out properly according to halacha. And the halacha was able to be both the same time. But my question is, like, what is that actually? I actually don't. That's why when you often ask me to repeat what I said, I don't know the exact word. But you don't memorize exactly the words you say, but you can, like extensively yeah. You yeah, but I want to give an analogy that's more like relevant to. Yeah. Mitzvot and God. Have you ever done something dangerous? And you're aware that it's dangerous, but you also have to do it. 
That's right. The small things become very big things. Right? Like, if you're, I don't know, like, one time uh, I went, uh, what do you call it? Rock climbing kind of thing. I don't know what's... Repelling. Repelling, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like like if you do anything wrong, you're going to die. Except you will. So... It's like, okay, I really do need to like, yes, that's screwed in. Yes, that's screwed in. Okay, three times you check it. Why? Because small things are big things. Now, that means though you have to be in touch with what is the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is not, like this is the thing, this is why the packing thing. If you forget to bring your, I don't know, comb, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? Right. So there's like, there is that, there's this tension between like the vacation and the trip is this big thing and like the comb, it's like, right? But when something goes to like a life and death kind of thing, then, the, then that division disappears. How so though? Because if you are focusing so much on screwing that little screw, you're not focusing on how fun it is going to be when you like come out with the adrenaline of the experience. Like say skydiving, because mm-hmm. I don't know how, what you're talking yeah. about, how it works. If like... It's your first time ever jumping out alone. Then you're focused on all the little things that could go wrong, and you're not focused on having fun jumping out. No, no, I'm not saying that they could go wrong. You're just focused on doing them right. You skydived and did your, all your own equipment. Uh, not personally. Oh, okay, well, it's fine. You just offloaded it to someone else. Skydive and do your own equipment. Then I'd be freaking out about the whole equipment thing and not actually have fun jumping out. Of okay, plane. so you wouldn't have fun, but it would. You, but the fact that it's a big deal that you're jumping out of a plane and the fact that that snap is snapped would not be a contradiction. That's all my point is. I didn't say I guarantee anything about fun. <laughs> but that's what the trip one was. But that's why the trip one doesn't work, because okay. there's really no connection between the fun of the trip. So there's something that, in other words, when something, with when right that. There's this other paradigm that you're looking at it. And so the idea is, if the thing that you really become focused on is that what makes something important is because if that's the way God wants reality to be, then the divisions between the spiritual and the physical, they disappear. The reason why we don't, like we're after the giving of the Torah, why don't we feel this? Because really, what, what's, our, what's the way we go about living our lives? This gets us into the next thing. When we're doing mitzvahs, and let's talk about when we're doing mitzvahs, and we're motivated to do mitzvahs. Okay? Why do we do mitzvahs? Really? Okay, so part of the reason why we do mitzvahs, right, is that... Um, it's a kind of a lifestyle that we're a culture to, we're familiar with, we value its influence on us, right? So we're very focused on the interplay between the experience of the human being and the religious observance and how those things match together, either because we've grown up and it's habitual or it's something that seems appealing to us. And we are very focused on how there's this nice harmony, this nice match between you as a human being and the religious lifestyle. So I'm talking to the degree which a person's motivated to do mitzvahs. That's one thing. Then there's a whole other thing. A person can be very mystical. And what's the value they see in the mitzvahs? The mitzvahs are means to bring create about... Angels. Create angels and spiritual stuff. Stuff that has nothing to do with our regular everyday experience at all. So, yeah. So, for instance, when you light a Shabbos candle, here's like this, yeah? When you light Shabbos candles, yeah? 
you're part of a group, you're part of an identity, it changes how you know you approach Shabbos and the rest of the week. It's a, it's a thing, it features in you know, the regular human life and that's a, when you appreciate that, you value that, you know, it becomes part of something you're cultured to doing and it's, you know, it's nice. Or like lighting Shabbos candles can be like this ritual to, that you do because you value all the spiritual stuff that you learn about making angels and connecting spheres and drawing down all this kind of spiritual stuff and it's very mystical. One person in Shiva has to light candles for the Holy Shiva. There's a, but in both cases, what's happening? You're looking at the value in the mitzvah as a, a, a kind of independent of God. There's like there's the mitzvahs, God made them. They have some kind of value. Is the value understood from the human perspective, or is the value understood from this mystical perspective? And as long as that's where people operate from, they're two different things. So, I will ask you a question. How do the halachas of Purim have to do with the spirituality of Purim? Like if you go to one place and you go to another place and the spirituality, like... If you're in one place, Purim is this day. If you're in another place, Purim is that day. But Purim, you're supposed to accomplish these spiritual things. And like, what does that have to do with like where you are and what day it is? You want the answers? The answer is, God finds it meaningful for you to be doing certain things in certain times at certain places. And God finds it meaningful to connect certain mystical things to what you're doing in certain ways and not in other ways. And that's the end of it. God, see this is the problem, is this third way is saying that there's, God is, is, is creates reality. And so looking for within why things have to be that way is never going to get anywhere. The ultimate truth is that just God wants it that way. And if that really becomes something that motivates a person, then they stop thinking in terms of the binary of is it physical or is it spiritual? Are mitzvahs there to make you a better person or are mitzvahs meant to do mystical stuff? Yes and. Okay? But when you try to live in a way of yes and, you're like playing a juggling game. It's like, you know those, those optical illusions where you can see like a f- two faces or a, or a goblet? But you only see one or the other. And if you're, ever really, if you're really good with your mind, you can switch back and forth at will which one you see, but you never see both at the same time. Why not? Because you're still stuck in the fact that one is the foreground, one is the background. One is this one. That's the toggle switch way of looking at things. The real power of the Torah is that if there's one God who creates all of the reality, then there aren't really true these, these divisions that we make between physical reality and spiritual reality, godly reality. Those are just, those are fake. Those are products of our mind. They're not intrinsic to God. And so there really isn't this difference. And that means getting in touch with something much deeper than, the, than looking for the value in what I'm doing. It means looking for focusing on one thing only, which is, is this important to God? So that's what we need to do for us. And when, so now, if you're doing Torah, because Torah is good for you, it's habit, it makes your life better, you're only connecting to the physical side of the Torah. If you're doing Torah because you find all the mystical stuff very inspiring, and that's why you're doing Torah, you're connecting to the godly side. But if you're doing the Torah mitzvahs because, then what will happen as a result? That's right. 
And that ability to do Torah mitzvah is simply because this is meaningful to him, because he is the creator of reality itself, that was not available until Mount Sinai. Yes? So can we think about the, the physical aspect of Torah as like the how, the requirements, and the bridge is the what as in God's happiness, so the spiritual is why, like why he finds... The reverse, the, the reverse. The reverse. You have the why and the what. How are you supposed to do the mitzvah? That's the physical. What yeah. is the mitzvah? The godly. Why is the mitzvah important? The wait, wait, wait. How should you do the mitzvah? That's the it's physical. physical. Uh-huh. What is a really a mitzvah? The spiritual. The godly. So the spiritual aspect of Torah are mitzvah themselves. Mm-hmm. But what is the why of a mitzvah? What really makes it important? God's happiness. And if you're in touch with that, then those two things come together. Otherwise, there's a, there's a division between the two. Let's go around the table starting to write. Yes. So before you were doing before, like, I mean, does it mean that, like, Avram like, wasn't aware that these things were making God happy? So, so here's the thing. He was, a, he was aware that there was, there was this, he was aware that this is a truth. But it was not, he was not able to tap into that. And the reason he wasn't able to tap into that is because in order for you to tap into something, there needs to be two things. It needs to be available to you, and you need to take it. Just to use a simple example, if you want to see the sun, it needs to be daytime, and you need to have working eyes and go outside. So at night, are you aware there's a sun? But you can't see it. So Avraham was like nighttime. He knew there was a sun. He knew there was this higher truth, right? He could explain it to you, he could infer it, but was that something that actually was part of how he lived? He couldn't, he couldn't live with this. When Avram was motivated to do mitzvahs, Avram was motivated to do mitzvahs because he felt what this spiritual reality is, and that was so powerful, and that was so important to him, he was just totally absorbed in that. If you were to stop and ask him to teach a class, you could explain the same stuff I'm explaining to you. But it wasn't within his ability to be motivated by just the simple fact that God is the origin of reality and therefore what's valuable is ultimately has nothing to do with the nature of things but simply because God wills it. That was not something that was revealed to him in the sense that he could, it could resonate with him, he could experience it. When was the first time Hashem revealed that? Mount Sinai. There's a, there's a very big difference between something being information that you know and something being revealed that actually becomes part of how you live and what you and what you can do. Yeah. The reasoning behind, as a friend of mine likes to say, Avraham had chemistry with God. But if you have chemistry with someone, that means you're doing things because they're important to them, or you're doing things because you see the same things that they see. You value the same things they value. So it's not exactly, it's not the same idea. Avraham, he appreciated the godly reality, so he's totally devoted to it. He understood that the ultimate truth is something higher, but that's not where he was holding. And it wasn't necessarily his fault, per se. And that requires that reveals be real. You could ask, by the way, a follow-up question this and say, well then, I mean, it's not revealed to me, right? And the answer to that is that's not true. It is revealed to you. It's just you're not paying attention to it, A. And B, even that is not true. You are paying attention to it. It's just not 
the part of you that's paying attention to it is the part of you that tends to be rather unconscious. Right? Um, the, 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 the way I like to use, the analogy I like to use for this, um, you ever been to people's houses for Shabbos and sometimes it's really awkward and sometimes it's like really comfortable but you can't necessarily pick up on why that is? So that means are you picking up on something? But are you conscious as to what's going on that you pick? What, what are you picking up on? No. So we, by by having godly souls, do pick up on this truth of the Torah even right now. The question is, is that integrated enough into the rest of our psyche that it actually consciously influences us and motivates us, or not? But Avraham, that his problem just wasn't revealed at all. There was nothing to pick up on. He could understand there must be the case that this is true, but it wasn't revealed to him. Yeah. So, yes and no. In the mitzvah, you're always accomplishing it because God is revealing this into your soul and therefore, in as much as your soul is involved in the mitzvahs, then it's actually happening. There is a problem, though, with the person as a whole human being. There's an element of this which is not happening. In other words, there's... The mitzvah might have this, but you as the performer of the mitzvah might not really be part of it. Um, in other words, let's go back. When you're doing mitzvahs, because you see that how mitzvahs enhance your human existence or they're comfortable for you, whatever the case might be, then you, um, or you're doing mitzvahs because you have a sense of you know, the spiritual, mystical stuff and that's very appealing to you and kind of detaches you from that, then in as much as this unity is taking place, it's taking place outside of you. You're not part of it. What makes you part of it is that you bring the sensitivity of your soul that what's really important is what God finds meaningful into your, into your conscious motivation of why you're doing the mitzvah. And then the unity in the actual mitzvah actually envelops and incorporates you as well, which is actually what God really wants. He doesn't want mitzvah machines. He wants you as the performer of the mitzvah. So you have to be engaged in the mitzvah. Yeah, that's non-Jewish. The mitzvahs that were given to non-Jews is just that. There's no godly correlate to it. Yeah. So isn't it kind of egotistical to think that like, what, like one action that I do can make God happy, like peeling the strawberries that like, make God happy? So I'll tell you what the Baal Shem Tov said. The Baal Shem Tov said that the Talmud tells us that humility is the cause of the destruction of the temple. And the temple, when there was, there was a whole issue about offering a sacrifice, and one of the sages was, he was very humble, and he, he felt it was inappropriate for anyone to really take a stand. We always have to defer to tradition, and, and um, as a result of that, the temple was destroyed and we're in exile. And the Baal Shem Tov says the lesson we learn from that is people, people use humility to say exactly what you say. Who am I? And the answer is, well, if God is the arbiter of reality, he can decide that you're the key, Right? That, that, that's basically what that boils down to, yeah? You're, you, you, accepting, accepting God as the arbiter of reality means also accepting that if he says, you make the difference, well, then I guess I make the difference. Not, it's only egotistical if that's your a priori assumption. Of course it would be me. Who wouldn't be anybody else? 
Like, I, you're not shocked. Like, why would God pick anyone else? That's egotistical. Okay. <laughs> yes. If the Noahide laws are, have no spiritual aspect to them, then when we do them, do they have a spiritual aspect? Yeah, but they're not Noahide laws. That's why, that's why Hashem has to re-give all of the laws. So even though he told Noah not to murder, he had to re-give it against the Jewish people at Harsinai because in order to make it part of what the Torah really is, you need a separate So when commandment. I don't murder, it's spiritual, but when a non-Jew doesn't murder, it's not spiritual. There's a, there's a footnote here, which is, if you are able to get a non-Jew not to murder out of a recognition that God is the arbiter of reality and he commanded it at Harsinai, then you are imbuing godliness into his not murdering. So, you know, if the non-Jew wants some godliness in his life, and if you have any compassion for him or her, then what should you be doing? Yes, which is why they're very much so, which is why their dad is anti-prison. What like really, really anti-prison, super anti-prison. Like I can't emphasize enough how anti-prison the Rebbe is. <laughs> um, yeah. The, 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 the Rebbe, yeah. Anyway, so tomorrow what we'll do is we'll talk about, we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about We'll review this point, and we'll talk about what was missing at the giving of the Torah, and that changed on Purim, that actually makes this more of a reality now after Purim. Thank you. Thank you for confusing me. I'm sorry. I confused you. Just like I understand the concepts, but that confuses me.